Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess, and this is episode five of our series of bonus episodes in partnership and collaboration with All Tech is Human. Now, before we talk a bit more about our collaborator for this episode, we want to announce that we have officially hit 30,000 unique downloads for the podcast. Yay! I'm sure you're all celebrating in your living room right now, just like we are in our respective living rooms. Um, But uh, yeah, it's it's really, it's a big deal. And thank you all so much for the uh, continued support. It's been a wild ride so far and we're sure it's going to keep being a wild ride, especially with what's coming up um, this next week for the two of us in in our country in the United States. Um, This is the last episode that we're releasing before the 2020 U.S. uh, elections. Jess, how are you feeling about that? Oh, I'm feeling so many things, and I'm ready to turn off my phone and turn off my laptop and delete my social media profiles and go drive far away into the forest and stay away from all things that are anything to do with media in the United States. <laughs> yeah, that's. I'm also ready to be done with the election. Is that- <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough week. It's a tough year. Um, but uh, again, we're really excited to bring to you this uh, conversation with our partner, All Tech is Human. As a reminder, All Tech is Human is an accelerator for tech consideration and a hub for the responsible tech community. A part of how All Tech is Human is living into their mission during these increasingly digital times is by producing regular live stream events with some of the experts in the AI ethics space who are pushing the status quo and interrogating issues of race, gender, class, and more in the technology sector. If you are new to the series, the format for these episodes features selected audio from the previous week's All Tech is Human event. And in the outro, Jess and I discuss which action items you can take some ways to continue the conversation. We provide some relevant resources and some of our spectacular commentary. Some call it banter. Banter. Please note that if you would like to experience the undoctored audio recording, please follow the link in the show notes to view the original All Tech is Human live stream for the event. This conversation explores the topics of social media's role in the U.S. election through expert insight from the invited guest speakers Deepayan Ghosh and Vera Zakem. Deepayan Ghosh is the co-director of Digital Platforms and Democracy Project at the Harvard Kennedy School, where he conducts research on digital privacy, artificial intelligence, and civil rights. He is also the author of the book Terms of Disservice, and he's a former public policy advisor at Facebook. Vera Zakem is the Senior Tech and Policy Advisor at the Institute for Security and Technology, and she is also the CEO of Zakem Global, which is a woman-owned agency that serves governments, industry, and nonprofit organizations at the intersection of technology, global engagement, corporate social responsibility, and security, all who seek to have a measurable impact on society and democracy. This conversation was moderated by All Tech is Humans, David Ryan Polgar, and the organizational partner for the event was The Bridge. Hey everyone, and welcome to our live stream series that All Tech is Human does with our organization partner, The Bridge. Uh, We're always looking at some of the thorny issues in 
tech and society. And you know what? If there's a thorny issue, I would say that it's social media's role in the U.S. election. I'm your host and moderator for today's discussion. I'm the founder of All Tech is Human. My name is David Ryan Polgar. You can find me on Twitter at, uh, at Tech Ethicist and also All Tech is Human at All Tech is Human. Uh, pretty simple right there. I'd also like to thank Radical AI Podcast, which is going to be running this discussion with their podcast and then include additional resources uh, you can, can follow along with, including kind of related books and other resources to make these more action related. I'll also emphasize that we try to make this 45-minute discussion together highly interactive. So I'd love for you to insert your questions uh, in the chat feature. I'll be looking at those, playing double duty and uh, inserting a lot of these into the stream. So I'm really excited about the two great guests that we have today. We have uh, Vera Zakem and also Dipayan Ghosh. So Vera Zakem uh, is the CEO of Zakem Global Strategies, the Senior Policy and Technology Advisor for the Institute for Security and Technology, and the former strategy and research at Twitter. So Vera, welcome to today's live stream. Thank you for having me. Also like to intro Depayan. He's a co-director of the Digital Platforms and Democracy Project at the Harvard Kennedy School, the former public policy advisor at a little startup called Facebook, and also the author of Terms of Disservice. I'll try to put that on screen and then the Subtitle of that is How Silicon Valley is Destructive by Design. So, Dipayan, you are not bearing the lead on that. Uh, welcome, to, welcome to today's discussion. Thank, thanks for having me, uh, David, and it's a pleasure to uh, have a chance to chat with you and Vera. Well, we're really excited, uh, as is uh, Kate O'Neill, who we have uh, joining us today, too. She's doing some great work, and as a follow-up, uh, she's got a great discussion with uh, Yale Eisenstadt uh, at 2.30 Eastern today. Uh, and just to give a little more context, since this is a very thorny, complicated topic, when we're really talking about social media's role in democracy at large, especially on November 3rd, we have this upcoming uh, contentious U.S. election that a lot of people are really concerned about, given that it's so contentious. But to give us a little bit of background for today's discussion, uh, I'd like to have each one of you, and I'll start with Vera, to discuss a little bit more about uh, your background and how it relates to today's discussion around social media's role in the U.S. election. So, Vera. Yeah, so, David, again, thank you for having me. It's just delightful to be here and uh, chatting with you and Defiant. So uh, my background, actually, I spent many years working with policymakers on both sides of the aisle uh, in Washington and international policymakers, as well as military leaders, uh, looking at the role in global conflict, but most specifically, the both where state and non-state actors, most especially terrorist organizations, uh, use different modes of communication to persuade their audience and to target their audience, if you will, to achieve their desired objectives. Um, you know, I remember when I Certainly for me, 9-11 was this kind of defining moment, and that's when I kind of really got into security, national security. And back then, it was really a lot around terrorist organizations. And there was really very much in terms of how terrorists uh, or terrorist organizations and individuals were uh, radicalizing people. Certainly YouTube, even mm -hmm. back then in the day, and other uh, other channels as well. But then I think for me, you know, when Ukraine happened, especially, and then really even earlier, but certainly Ukraine was sort of the hallmark of how Russia was using uh, social media as well as 
offline as well because it's part of a broader protracted Milan influence campaign mm -hmm. to target uh, not just uh, folks in Ukraine, but other parts uh, of uh, former Soviet Union and other, other parts of the world. That's kind of how I really got into the topic and really understanding it and really understanding this. And then after spending um, many years working with policymakers and military leaders, I transitioned to Silicon Valley world. Uh, really trying to understand how does social media work? What is the impact of technology on all of this? Um, and to be frank, I mean, I think it's just kind of given me a little bit more of a nuanced perspective because on one side you have this the disinformation dilemma, which is huge in terms of, you know, social media is definitely overall as an industry weaponized mm -hmm. information. And, if, and now that we, and I'm sure we'll talk about the sort of the filter bubbles that we live in, but then also this, the flip side of disinformation, right? Uh, which is, and I'll talk about this a little bit as well, which is digital authoritarianism. Because on the other side, you have uh, actors like China and Iran that are using state-run propaganda and actually censoring uh, their populations, not just within their own countries and globally. So again, thorny topics. It is a thorny <laughs> but, topic. Uh, you know, but one, you know, when, with, when we discuss regulations and other things that we can do about, I feel both sides should be considered. Well, Vera, thank you. Thank you for that overview. It, it, it seems very quaint to think that we used to consider uh, social media or the, the internet at large as cat videos, but somehow we've gone uh, in 2020 from cat videos to QAnon. So maybe a good title for, for, for a book, uh, Define, if you are working on a sequel. So I'll, I'll move over to you, Define. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your background. I know you have some extensive work uh, in, in government and also curious to, with some of your work at uh, Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, thanks so much, David. And uh, it's it's uh, you know this is a, obviously a fascinating set of topics and a, and a really high-powered uh, uh, group of folks to speak with. Um, you know, I, very briefly, I, I think I think um, my my deep concern with uh, with the shape of the media ecosystem uh, as it stands today uh, was was really driven uh, by the year of 2016 as a general matter. Um, I was working at Facebook at the time uh, and uh, was uh, really, really witnessing uh, a, a set of circumstances, a, a, um, a commercial infrastructure, if you will, that uh, that marketers, including political campaigns and disinformation operators, were essentially taking advantage of, mm -hmm. uh, and really, uh, really starting to um, uh, damage uh, democratic process. In uh, in in serious ways, in my in my personal view, and um, that's what that's what drove me to to write this book, in terms of disservice, and and um, lead this research project at Harvard, where we try to study uh, the the business models behind uh, behind companies, uh, behind Silicon Valley internet platforms, uh, to be more to be more specific, and their connection with society. Um, and in fact, this is this is what uh, in a new paper by uh, Nick Nick Coldry and, and me. Uh, Nick Nick is a, a professor at LSE on on media and communications uh, that we released yesterday. We we try to make a new kind of connection between uh, between the business model uh, and the impact not on not only on economics and politics, which a lot of people have discussed, but on society itself. Um, and I think you know we're we're seeing this again now in the in the context of this of this uh, election, 
Uh, yesterday's uh, hearings uh, in, in Washington are, are a good illustration of how noisy the media environment has become. This is nominally a hearing about Section 230 reform, uh, and no one talked about Section 230 reform, <laughs> except for Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg, uh, as a matter of fact. So, um, so I think, I think we, we all uh, need to come to terms with how uh, everything is changing around us, and we, we need to figure out a way to put power back in the hands of consumers uh, and, and uh, rebalance the distribution of economic power from, uh, from these dominant platforms in Silicon Valley uh, back, to the, back to the little guys. So I'll use that to springboard for our first question, uh, which is really the title for, for today's discussion about social media's role in the U.S. election. Uh, Vera, start with you. What do you generally see as social media's media's role? Because as the Pion is is talking about, how do we shift the power back to the the individuals? But I think it's a it's a interesting discussion about what role uh, social media platforms should should play. For example, if they are intertwined with democracy, that is uh, handing a significant amount of power to uh, unelected officials. So how would we change that? Or is it about kind of altering the uh, power dynamic? So, so Vera, what are your general thoughts yeah. on where you see social media's role in, in democracy at large and specifically yeah. with this upcoming U.S. election? Yeah, so let me kind of start also just the broader societal, which is democracy at large. And again, there's two sides of the coin that I do want to point, paint. You know, when we saw sort of the rise, if you will, of social media, I always, to me, the anchor is the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we saw these massive protests and all the changes in the reforms that led in the Middle East, right? Now we see similar things happening. I mean, the one, I'm just saying the, the, the one finger on the positive, you know, we see, um, I mean, I personally haven't followed, you know, democracy sort of this field for a while. Hong Kong, but certainly day in and day out to this day, we see protests from certainly on Twitter, from Belarus, right? Uh, they're trying to oust Lukashenko. So there's that. So the ability to, for one side of social media is to inform the public, to share information, to inform the, the public, and even for this election specifically in a positive way to mobilize the population you know, to galvanize, it's mobilize, to also get out to vote. I think what we've seen on the positive end, there is, you know, certainly Facebook and Twitter, uh, Google as well. They have pretty massive, you know, voter, voter centers and information centers, been having this kind of like registering to vote, all of that. So that's, and that's great. So like my point is there's a lot of service, mm -hmm. right? The way the information travels, that social media provides. But to Depayan's point, with that comes the bad stuff as well. And I, it's not only what or concerns me, particularly social media's role in the U.S. election writ large, it's not only the sort of the tone of the conversation and how disinformation, the virality of this disinformation on how it spreads in open networks, but also closed networks as well. Mm -hmm. So like I'm thinking, for example, in Facebook, Facebook groups, right? A lot of stuff where we think about right now with, uh, you know, QAnon, um, with Proud Boys, a lot of the domestic terrorism uh, that we're dealing with right now, sort of other things as well that are out there. And even uh, let's just talk about the infodemic, right? Uh, there's the whole anti-vax movement. A lot of it, yes, you're going to see this and based on sort of micro-targeting and political ads that you may or may not see or other ads, you know, sort of advocacy ads, you're going to be targeted in certain ways 
and uh, going through those filter bubbles. But I'm also concerned as part of it is again, more of this kind of the closed networks or if you will, groups that may not be necessarily, everyone is not gonna be in those groups. Right. So it's one of those things, again, the thorny issue because we have to, in, in proposing any kind of meaningful reforms, um, I think we need to recognize sort of all of these positive you know, attributions that are actually really nece necessary for democracy to thrive, but also then how do we actually go after, you know, and um, engage and handle some of the negative repercussions. Disinformation is certainly one of them. And then the other issue, which we may touch on is privacy, right? Privacy, yes. and then the, the ability to actually, you know, whether this information, whether our information is uh, consumer information is um, going to the wrong hands. Okay, and I, I guess the, the question that I would send over to Depayan, uh, given everything that you're talking about, uh, one, since you mentioned disinformation, I will say to everybody watching, happy uh, Media Literacy Week. Media literacy is essential to uh, to a thriving democracy, which uh, feels somewhat in peril right now. So let's let's put a more emphasis on media literacy. But Payan, uh, you you worked previously with uh, with Facebook. We call these social media companies. I'll put an emphasis on the uh, the latter media. However, they're not uh, obviously legally uh, considered a, a media company, which is uh, part of the discussion around uh, Section 230. Um, but it seemed like uh, with, with yesterday's uh, heated kind of uh, whatever you want to call that uh, food fight, uh, there there always seems to be kind of a, a circling around with speech online and really kind of viewing a lot of these major social media platforms as if they are uh, media companies. And what I will say, the key difference that sometimes we forget is that a media company uh, filters and then publishes, whereas the way we traditionally set up uh, the internet and then the web and then uh, social media companies is that uh, you, you basically are having individuals publish and then the platform has the right but not responsibility to filter uh, the, the, the kind of you know, ecosystem that they have. Where do you see that kind of changing, especially given your your expertise around business models? Uh, because there's always a lot of debate around whether we should consider uh, social media companies uh, and classify them as media companies. It's a it's a great thought, David. Uh, and and to put it a, a bit uh, from a from a different sort of angle, um, you you could you could see it almost as a spectrum. On one side, you have uh, uh, companies that are like platforms or on, on one side you have platforms that really just serve as a conduit uh, for information um, like uh, let's say your your internet provider um, and on the other side you have um, media organizations that uh, that essentially serve to uh, um, write and, and publish and, and curate content like the New York Times or Fox News um, uh, and uh, I would I would suggest that you know the, the funny thing is that Facebook sometimes claims that it's a platform in certain situations when it when it serves Facebook's commercial interest, and in other situations claims that it's a it's a media organization, um, or uh, to be more specific in the, about the way that Facebook uh, uh, characterizes its its presence. Uh, or its its uh, its economic uh, uh, value. Uh, Facebook sometimes tries to uh, 
put on the the put around the idea that that uh, there is intellectual property in the way that it it curates content and and that serves as a as a meaningful force in our in our economy. Um, and uh, the the key here is that um, whether you're under one regular regulatory structure or the other, uh, you stand to you stand to gain some benefit from protection from the law, but you also stand to be under some regulation under the law. That's mm -hmm. to say, have some constraints applied by the law. And because Facebook hasn't technically been classified under either, um, it 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 plays its position around the spectrum in convenient ways so that it can take advantage of of. Uh, of the positive aspects of being considered a platform in the sense that it can take advantage of Section 230, for instance, mm -hmm. or uh, takes advantage of um, being able to be considered a, a, a media organization of source. It doesn't explicitly call itself a media organization, but it claims that that its, its curation of content helps consumers. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think, to be honest, it, it it does serve both functions in different ways. And if it wants to benefit from the protections, the legal protections that it, uh, it gets from, uh, from one or the other status, it should also be subject to uh, stringent regulations uh, under one or the other. Um, so it, my, my personal view is, is very much in line with yours, David. And, and I, think the, I think the frustrating thing is that, you know, many, many, People, many, including in Congress, you know, it takes a long time to get here. It, it took a long time for us to get to the point where we're starting to say that, you know what, S Section 230 may not be so sanctified. Maybe we do need to reform it. Maybe we do need to put some carve outs on Section 230. If you think about this a year ago, you had, um, you had politicians from both sides saying that, you know, that, that is the Internet. We don't want to touch yeah. the Internet ever. Yeah. Um, and that goes with the expert community too. Um, but now it's become the popular thing to say. Um, you know, that's that's not a bad thing. The Overton window shifts, but mm -hmm. I think if we really can look at the economics of these companies now, as it stands, uh, we could have said this a long time ago. We should we should have ha been having these conversations uh, a while back. Um, you know, to, to something that Vera just uh, said um, earlier as well, um, I, think, I think she's absolutely right. Social media's uh, place in our, in our national discourse, political discourse, is defined by the Arab Spring, uh, should be defined by the Arab Spring, normatively at, at least. Um, here you had a situation where Facebook and Twitter were responsible for uh, for alleviating the intellectual oppression of million, tens of millions of people uh, in an important region of the world, uh, and um, and it was largely Facebook and Twitter, or at least the convening power that organizers were able to establish over Facebook and Twitter, that enabled them to speak with each other and break out of that mold. But in the in the two or three years after that. Facebook started in integrating advertising technology and algorithms into ad optimization and content creation, which has led to the disinformation problem and the problems around hate speech that we that we have seen in 2016 and see today. So the platforms are different from what they were 10 years ago. And I think I think to an extent, 
we do neither either, we do either need to return uh, in some way to the, to the circumstances in 2010 or rethink the, the media regulatory environment so that we can reshape ourselves uh, and 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 start to start to work against the the virality of this this these various offending forms of content do you think we should pay for Facebook? I, I remember there was an op-ed, this was a couple of years ago, uh, that argued, Mr. Zuckerberg, you know, let me pay for, for Facebook. It was, the title was, uh, you know, something around that. And um, obviously we, we know that uh, Silicon Valley has, has really kind of honed into this free but not free type of idea, uh, quote unquote, uh, attention economy based on an ad-based uh, platform. So Vera, I'd love to hear if you have any kind of thoughts on that because there's always been, Discussion, especially from a lot of advocacy groups, to say, "Well, let us let us actually pay for that." On the flip side, people have argued that there would be uh, a massive distinction about then who pays for it, who has the free product, uh, and then maybe treating privacy as a luxury as opposed to a, a right. So, uh, what, what are your yeah. thoughts uh, specifically on that? I'm not sure. I mean, um, I think there's, there's two things. One is, I mean, paying. If we, if we, you, if we view these platforms as, if you will, public square, where conversation happens, where they're to inform, to get information, to mobilize, to social, uh, to, uh, and also to form a community, uh, paying for it. I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting concept. I'm not. 100% sure that's the right way to go because the one thing that I'm concerned about is potential inequality. Okay. Uh, you know, the sort of the, the because, you know, who is going to pay? There's folks that, like, for example, that can afford to pay and will pay. But then if, if you think about this broad segment of the population that use it to, in a very benign way, to connect with family and friends, to uh, you know, read up on sports, on news, and whatever cannot. And then also, again, back to the back to the point of to if we go back to the original principles, right? A free, mm -hmm. not just free expression. To what Japan was saying, we're talking about Arab Spring. I can talk about Hong Kong. I can talk about Belarus. In the U.S., Black Lives uh, Black Lives Matter. Like all of these kind of movements, wherever they are. And the ability in the ability for those movements to actually galvanize and organize. If we were to pay to use these platforms, does that actually discourage, like reduce those movements from happening or discourage the participation of those movements? That's just one thing that I add. But mm -hmm. to your point also, there is the flip side of it, which is the advertising to exactly what I said, advertising and in this election, we can certainly talk about it, you know, the political advertising around certainly U.S. election and also other elections, which not only leads to micro-targeting, but actually um, spreads disinformation and really, really confuses voters. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, let's shift over and talk about the, uh, the New York Post. I will admit that sometimes that is a guilty pleasure of mine when I'm walking around Manhattan. I buy it for its punny headlines. Um, but, uh, Pian, uh, a lot of, a lot of discussion around the recent, uh, New York post story, uh, detailing the kind of alleged emails from Hunter Biden, a very convoluted story dealing with, uh, a, a, you know, a, a computer shop in Delaware. Uh, a lot of platforms, uh, came down hard on this, uh, 
wearing that it was potential misinformation or disinformation. Um, as, they yeah. as they should. Yeah. So please expand on that and, and tell us uh, what you think some of the, the thought process were, was, because I know there was a distinction between how Facebook originally approached it and then how Twitter did. And then even within Twitter, there was a debate from Jack Dorsey criticizing uh, his own kind of trust and safety team uh, since they had blocked it from uh, direct messaging at first to, to share the URL. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think that uh, it's a situation where the story uh, seems to seems to be very uh, a very clear instance of disinformation. Um, why do I say that? I say that because uh, the substance of the story itself, or I, I, I hesitate to call it substance, the the uh, the story itself, the narrative in the story itself, uh, has similarities, alignments with uh, with Russian disinformation mm -hmm. trials, uh, from over the summer. That's that's part one. Part two, uh, there are testimonies from Democrats and Republicans uh, from, I believe, last month about this issue. Um, three, uh, the intelligence community has has dozens in the intelligence community have suggested uh, quite strongly that this is disinformation. I mean, what else do you need to to um, to really uh, say uh, assertively that well this is this is 95 percent likely to be disinformation we're, we're going to have to contain it from spreading um and and particularly because it's um you know it's a vicious story um uh, vicious narrative let's say uh it um it it is very likely untrue uh it's very likely connected to foreign election interference um and uh, and it's timed at a at a at a moment um, in our national political discourse and during an election that could uh, really be damaging to the democratic process. Um, so uh, so I think it's right to to take swift action uh, against the content. Um, now some of the you know I, I think the way that these these actions get ironed out in the in the context of a Twitter or a Facebook uh, as it's happening. Um, you know, these companies don't always have under every every circumstance a, a plan in place. And I think that's understandable um, from my perspective personally. Um, and what I would like to see at the end of the day are just good intentions. And I'm not saying that Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg or Sundar Pichai always have the best intentions, as a matter of fact. In fact, I would say that there are times when Facebook, for instance, has put um, its profits over the democratic interest quite explicitly, and uh, I take great issue with that. Um, but I think I think in Jack Dorsey's comments uh, in response to, uh, you know, I, I think I think uh, and, and Vera could speak much much more effectively than than me, given she worked at Twitter. But um, I think uh, I think. What came across is that his intentions are good. Uh, that came across yesterday, by the way, as well. Um, I, I really appreciated his comments during the hearings yesterday, um, and that he would try to do his best to to put in place a process uh, going forward to to contain um, the disinformation problem to the extent that Twitter should and can. But the pine, do you think there's a lot of confusion right now? I certainly see it on my end. Uh, with uh, the the First Amendment and even how it applies, because uh, a lot of people, when they discuss this type of issue, they like to say that Facebook or Twitter or other social media platforms 
are kind of uh, offending their their freedom of speech. Whereas if you actually dig out the Constitution, uh, it's referring to what the government cannot do. Uh, that said, uh, sometimes we do treat things in quasi-public square uh, types of mentalities, like um, uh, like we would a uh, a mall, since it is a private area, but has the expectation uh, of a public gathering spot. So do you see uh, anything kind of changing with that? Are, are we going to kind of have to change our conception even of how we think of free speech? Because, I mean, technically, it's the business uh, <laughs> under under U.S. law that would have a First Amendment speech. So really, Twitter, Twitter and Facebook actually are, are extending their own free speech rights with uh, with moderation. So it seems to be a little bit of uh, confusion in the, in the public right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll briefly say that, I, I, you know, I think I think it's a great point, David. And uh, we do need to, in my opinion, we do need to rethink free speech. We do need to reform Section 230. Um, we do need to, uh, because of the public nature of dominant platforms in, in the political discourse, uh, and those platforms' connection with society, democracy, elections, um, we do need to set some standards in place. That's that's my personal okay. view, and I know that it's a, only a personal view and a political view, uh, and it falls somewhere on a spectrum, and other people f- will fall in other places on that spectrum, understandably. Okay. Um, but I, I think that that we we do need to start to rethink this, at least in the specific context of social media. Um, you know, what do we do about hate speech? What do we do about child exploitation? What do we do about, um, um, because, because the, the, the problem is that this technological infrastructure is different from what humans are biologically, uh, and socially used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, this, this new sort of, uh, algorithmic, uh, virality, uh, that can, can actually, can actually have uh, very difficult consequences, terrible consequences on, on humanity. Um, So I'd like to right now uh, incorporate a lot of the questions. Uh, We received a lot of questions beforehand as people were signing up. I'd also like to encourage anybody uh, watching. uh, You can also use our comment feature and I'll see some of the additional comments that we should uh, insert uh, into the the stream. But one of the questions really dealt with um, how does this issue, and I'll give this to, to Vera, how does this issue affect people who are actually not actively using uh, social media platforms? For example, there's always been a movement for the last couple of years of uh, the hashtag uh, delete Facebook. So a lot of people like to, to basically say, hey, if this is a problem for you, then get off of uh, these social media platforms. There's obviously a very popular Netflix movie, The Social Dilemma, uh, which points out some of these major issues. So Vera, how would you answer that question? How does this impact people who are actually not even utilizing uh, most of these major social media platforms? It's huge, in fact. Uh, and I think the the online and offline world correlates. And I think one thing that we forget sometimes that disinformation and uh, the ability to actually cause harm as a result of disinformation. We've already seen plenty of cases uh, around this, and I'm certain that's like the one thing that I'm personally really worried around this election. Um, it, it happens, and but the key thing is disinformation happens. There's a couple of things. One is online. This is the social media, right? And mm-hmm. then on social media, we go to our trusted uh, sources. You're more likely to click on something. You're more likely to reshare, whatever, whatnot, if it's coming from people that you know and you trust. But then the, imagine for the people who are not offline. So the first thing is your first 
nuclear bubble where you're going to kind of consume the information is those trusted sources of friends and family. Uh, you, David, can go to your parents, you know, or mm -hmm. to your sister, brother, whomever, and be like, yep. oh, my God, guess what I saw? I know you're not on Facebook. I know you're not on Twitter. I know you're not you know, following this YouTube channel. But can you believe this? Right. And then someone goes, oh, really? you know, and again, it spreads that way. And, it, and that is really, really powerful. The other piece of it, so like the, you cannot underestimate the friends and family. Yeah. Then there's a th third piece of it, and that is, let's not forget in this election cycle, what we're seeing is the real power of mainstream media mm -hmm. and how polarized and politicized mainstream media has become. Yes, of course, you have journalists or pseudo-journalists, I would say pundits and influencers who are sharing this on, you know, um, on social media, but they're sharing this on the, you know, they're streaming this, they're sharing this on TV, they're going to other sources. And depending on your demographic, not everyone is on social media. You know, my mom certainly is not, you know, mm -hmm. and so you have other channels that they're going to, and that's where they're going to get sort of their news and sources of information, you know, information and a lot, you know, depends on where it's coming from it's going to some of it is going to be propaganda and disinformation and then the fourth piece to it tied especially for those that are not tied to social media and i think that also has an impact to kind of cultural religious communities socioeconomic whatever your ethnic communities whatever your affiliation may be here in the united states we've seen this all the time and also around the world as i've followed this issue and that is sort of the this whole concept of culture and society you know okay. think about how this information gets spread through you know your churches mosques and synagogues right uh, through um cultural institutions you know um through camps all these other ass all these other sort of affiliated things then again some of them may see something on social media there may be a whole group of people that may not even be on social media okay. but the idea here is it's not this whole problem it's Social media has the virality without a question. It has it has been the information has been weaponized. I think you know the politi uh, the political ads, right? The micro micro targeting, mm -hmm. all of those things. But I, I think we cannot forget those other you know vectors of it. And I think in this election they become actually pretty uh, severe, if you will. And that's something that I'm concerned about. So Depine, the, the question I'll ask uh, to you is: Vera mentioned the power in 2020 of major social media, or sorry, major media companies, uh, these gatekeepers. Uh, however, the promise of social media or even just the web at large was to uh, get away with the traditional uh, gatekeepers and democratize uh, inf information. Um, however, you know, in 2020, we've gone from the uh, promise of the quote unquote information highway, nobody talks about it anymore, to now the infodemic. But uh, the question I'll ask you, Depine, is, uh, are we seeing kind of a, a change now? Or are, are, are these major um, gatekeepers coming back into play? Or do you think that we're still on a pathway towards um, removing all of these major gatekeepers? Well, um, I, I think uh, it's, 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 a, it's a funny circumstance. You know, uh, yes, I think uh, Facebook, for, for instance, Twitter, YouTube would suggest that they are um, kind of uh, taking away uh, gatekeepers in the in the media ecosystem, you know, we always see those YouTube videos where uh, the hosts ask us to to subscribe and like it, and and we enjoy that, and and we appreciate the fact that we're contributing to someone directly um, instead of you know watching 
uh, a Fox News or, or an MSNBC and, and contributing instead to, to their ratings as, as big media organizations in and of themselves. But um, at the end of the day, we have to recognize that it's not just that YouTube host that's capturing economic uh, rent from, uh, from our participation in, in watching their video. Uh, it's YouTube, and YouTube is becoming uh, a gatekeeper. YouTube mm -hmm. is a gatekeeper already. Uh, every every single sector of the of the consumer internet industry that we might look at and choose to analyze, whether it's social media or search or online video or, or internet based text messaging um, or or e commerce uh, or email, um, you know, all of these sectors are monopolized by one of three companies. Um, and, uh, and and when I when I say that, what I mean is that in, in, in each of those industries, it's one of three companies that has more than 50% market share, and in some cases, more than 90% market share, or more than 85% market share. And and that's uh, that suggests that companies like Google through YouTube are becoming um, monopolies, are monopolies. Uh, and I would even suggest that they're not only uh, monopolies, they're natural monopolies, mm -hmm. and they're extracting economic rents at an exploitative rate. Um, so so I, think, I think they are becoming gatekeepers in the sense that you, you've, you've got to accept those terms or, or go home. Okay. Well, that leads to one of the, the questions we received uh, from the audience uh, before today's discussion. Uh, Vera, I'll ask uh, you, but I imagine, Dupai, and you have a lot of thoughts on this as well. So what is actually going to need to happen in order for social media companies to change? Is this going to be regulation? Is this a, you know, um, you know, some type of broader awakening of the, of the conscious uh, that, that needs to happen uh, with some of these leaders, right? Do we allow for more self-regulation? Uh, I'm curious, Vera, to hear your, your thoughts. What needs to happen for social media to change? Yeah, so I think on uh, this is where I kind of feel like on and you know after thinking about this quite a bit um, and thinking again also uh, not just from social media and tech but also democracy, civil society, national security lens. That's my framework or framing for this. Um, I think the first step before we just say okay. We, I think we need to recognize, for example, Section 2 there's a lot of goodness in that. There's just mm -hmm. maybe there needs to be some reforms to that, given sort of the realities that, uh, you know, we're facing with. But I think the first step to this is uh, pushing platforms in terms of responsibility for greater accountability and greater transparency because fundament and then also even auditability. So I don't know if this is the first step. Is it, is it just full on regulation? Or maybe it's in some sort of like a think about it, whether it's some sort of like a industry wide or, you know, you know, board or commission or whatever, whatever that body looks like, you know, I don't have the exact, you know, nonpartisan, you know, because, but I think it's that first, that and also passing the one thing I think we really actually need in this country. I mean, California is leading the way on this. The U.S. is uh, bigger privacy uh, laws and privacy regulations, so our information is not shared. But the bigger thing is is, is, the, is the transparency and this kind of, you know, auditability and okay. So, but I, let me let me say this on this, it, just what's also really important. The conversation can't just be about with, Congress and social media companies. The conversation also needs to include civil society. 
they're actually addressing these issues. They're, they have diverse perspectives on these issues and, you know, a whole across a lot of these issues. I mean, pick whatever you can think, you know, I mean, gender, right? You know, we can think about religion. I mean, I, all of it, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, all of it. that's one. And then the, the second piece, it has to include also international voices to incorporate geopolitical perspectives and geopolitical nuances. And I think that with civil society is mission critical mission critical in this broader transparency and accountability okay. conversation that we have because and let me just say because again, let's let's remember some of the bigger players that we're talking about not the smaller ones but bigger ones and even the smaller ones too as they're growing they're international companies right they're multinational companies they're operating under different laws in different countries so i think again and the in context is super super important here so that's where civil society that is where people who understand sort of the geopolitical and geostrategic nuances have to be part of those conversations. Okay. And then Depine, I imagine your ears uh, perked up when Vera said accountability and transparency. I know those are two major parts uh, about terms of disservice. Um, the question I like to ask, I, I saw you, uh, a CNBC uh, interview you did speaking about your previous role at Facebook and then speaking about the company. You said, quote, privacy is directly in contradiction to its business model. So that presents uh, a major, a major kind of um, difficulty with with making a shift. Where where do you say where, where do you say we go from here? I think uh, I think you're you're absolutely uh, hitting the right uh, nail on the head, um, David. We we need regulation. Um, we have been through this time and time again. Uh, you know, Facebook, Google. Uh, for the most part, those two companies, uh, to be to be quite frank, have been pushing against uh, movement on privacy around the world, not just in Washington, around the world, and throughout the United States, uh, for that matter. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think what I'm trying to suggest here is that self-regulation is not going to work anymore. Okay. We've been into that system for 25 years. Uh, essentially, um, the ad industry has, has uh, I, if I had to characterize the way that uh, it has tried to um, regulate itself, uh, it is to stave off uh, an actual regulatory threat from government um, time and time again, um, while maintaining uh, the most exploitative parts of, of the business model behind the ad industry. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think I think that's not the kind of uh, that's that's simply not the kind of regulation we need. Self-regulation. Okay. We need uh, we need people working in the public interest. To Vera's point, um, people informed by uh, a, a wide variety of voices from civil society. From I, I don't really think honestly we need to listen to industry. To be to be quite frank, we know how the business model works. We know we know that. But um, uh, I would say. We need we need to listen to the public interest and act on the public interest. Okay. Well, that's a great segue to our final question, and then we'll just kind of circle back and and tell everybody where we can uh, stay in touch with some of your great work that both of you are doing. The final question that we have uh, from from uh, Fitz: uh, How do we bridge the gap? And this goes to Vera, what you were talking about. How do we bridge the gap between elected government officials that have the ability to enact reform? and individuals, groups that are already engaging with these issues. And frankly, I was thinking about that as well, right? So you, you have civil society that 
is, is very engaged in these issues, wants to get involved, but how do you actually bridge that gap between the government officials who have the power and ability to change and uh, civil society, these groups that, that know what we should do or have suggestions of what we should do, uh, but, but don't necessarily have a nice pathway into those elected officials. So Vera, I'd love to hear your thoughts and then to pie and then we'll, uh, and then we'll wrap up here. So three things. The last one I think is the most important. Um, inform, educate, and provide evidence. You know, we can talk here and pontificate on a lot of this stuff, you know, Depine, you, you were talking about the New York Post story with the lecture interference, something I closely follow. Evidence. When you know you want to bridge, show the evidence. Show that also you can bring in those other diverse perspectives and diverse voices and bring the data behind it. Then I think you have elected government officials elect in Congress, uh, executive branch, um, as well as around the world, you know, again, these companies are global, these issues are global, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this is obviously we're zeroed in on our election, you know, a few days away. Once we get the outcome and, the, you know, the, the country hopefully come down, comes down, hopefully <laughs> I put it in capital quotes, there's other elections around the world, right? There's other things. So again, you know, so it's, it's informed, educated and evidence. Okay. And then, uh, Dipayan, with yours, I'll also incorporate another comment that we had in case it, it dovetails into anything that you want to talk about. What can college students studying computer science do to learn how to create uh, responsible technology? So just kind of with your, your final thoughts, so how can people get more involved and how does this kind of relate to this movement? Uh, I know that we're trying to do it, I'll take a human, to inform and inspire the next generation of responsible technologists and change makers. Yeah, I think I think uh, college students learning CS and college students more generally and and younger people than that even are are the future. Um, so uh, so I think how can how can all of you uh, you know start to think about um, responsible technology? Well, I think there's a there's a huge uh, literature now um, that's that's coming together on. Uh, you know, how, how do we how do we start thinking about uh, responsible AI? How do we uh, how do we think about um, making sure that uh, that uh, we're considering everyone's uh, opinions? Um, how, how can we make sure that that artificial intelligence, when it's implemented in, in the newsfeed or in um, search engine results pages and, and page ranks, how can we make sure that it's not biased uh, for the people in power and, and that it's inclusive? Um, those are the kinds of questions we have to start be, be, uh, thinking about. And um, I think luckily at, at most you know, major universities in the US, for instance, there are data ethics classes now. There are um, uh, ethical AI discussions that are happening as a, as a matter of the core in, in computer science and electrical engineering. And, and I would say expose yourself to that. Yeah. Because as soon as you get exposed to that, uh, you will uh, you will open your mind to uh, to the, both the power of AI and uh, and 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 uh, its a capacity to do good and potentially do bad and and that will that will help uh, in in your own analysis of the impact that you want to have on the world. I and love if that. I just, yeah. If I can just add one thing to it, yes. it's fantastic, absolutely. And then in addition to computer science learning to program, 
also maybe investigate going into design, right? And research. It's all about understanding the customers. It's all about understanding the people and bringing those diverse perspectives into the conversation because those that work informs how product is developed and how product is made, how policies are developed, how they are enforced, and how you can actually develop emerging technologies to serve democracy and society and actually counter some of it. There's a lot already that's on the table. A lot, I mean, I see a ton of startups that are already piping up left and right, but there's just so much more work to be done in this space. Yeah. And I will say too, uh, that there's a big uh, movement towards public interest technology uh, and New America. Uh, at Define, you're, you're associated with New America in the past, right? They run the Public Interest Technology uh, University Network. And on a related note, uh, I'll take a assuming we just released a free resource uh, called The Guide to Responsible Tech, How to Get Involved and Build a Better Tech Future. You can find that. Uh, and it was released in partnership with NYU's Alliance for Public Interest Technology. Uh, you can find that at uh, responsibletechguide.com. So I want to thank everybody for uh, for tuning in today and their great questions. We're also, since we couldn't get to all of them, we'll follow up in a, a message and include some of the other interesting kind of resources, a link to Depiant's book uh, and other kind of resources uh, that you can do to continue to build a better tech future. Again, uh, I'm David Ryan Polgar with All Tech is Human. I'd also like to thank our organization partner, The Bridge. Check them out at thebridgework.com. And also a big thank you to our partner, a radical AI podcast. Vera, I'd love to hear from you about where people can stay in touch with your uh, incredible work. Oh, thank you. It's been a fantastic conversation. So certainly you can find me on Twitter at VeraLazyA, or I have a website, Zakim Global, or at the Institute for Security and Technology. Terrific. Dabayan, what about yourself? Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Vera, as well for the conversation. Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, GHOSHD7. As always, thanks so much to David Ryan Polgar and All Tech is Human for putting on this event and for Deepayan and Vera's expertise on this subject, this timely subject, Jess. Mm -hmm. And the live stream may be over, but there are many ways each of us can take action. And so Jess and I are going to debrief our biggest takeaways from this live stream, including some specific actions that you listeners can take and some resources to continue the conversation. So Jess, we have been putting on a series the past month or so about government, elections, voting, and AI. And now we've had this wonderful conversation with Deepayan and Vera focusing in on social media's role, on media in general, uh, and on what we can do, and also pathways in the government, just like how do we create action around these spaces? What are you thinking about all that? Well, I'm thinking that social media plays a much bigger role in democracy than they admit. <laughs> and I think we're all well aware of this now, especially during the US election process. And I think we were aware of it four years ago as well, but maybe not quite as much. Um, so I think the first thing that's on my mind is just that it's time for social media companies to take responsibility for the fact that they're not just a media outlet or a neutral platform. They are clearly much more than just that. <laughs> so I think that's that's the first thing that's coming to my mind. What about you, Dylan? No, I think that's right on. And what we keep hearing from guests of the show is that social media is not 
apolitical. It's not just something out there that it has no values and is just this receptacle for like correct information. What we keep hearing is that information is political and how we share information is political and social media right now, including in this election, but also all around the world, like the role that Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, right, recently, uh, all those platforms are, are playing in how we hear stories, how we interpret stories, you know, what we uh, tell our friends about. I know Vera was talking in this conversation about how even if you're not on social media, it is still impacting the information that is coming through your pipeline based on just the people in your life. Like social media has radically changed how we think about facts and figures and, and really how those things are transmitted and how stories are transmitted. And then you add that to what has been the case for a long time where you have you know cable news networks that have become increasingly partisan. Um, you add it to just more traditional news reports. I think we were talking about the either the New York Post or the Daily Post and how they are still publishing uh, things that may or may not be grounded in truth. And you get this, this mess of, we're not just talking about technology here, we're talking about how we treat information and how we trust the world around us. And that's what I keep coming back to in these conversations and in this conversation today, you know, and I, to your point, right? It's like, well, what should the role of social media be? And then these questions of what should the role of regulation be? And you and I were talking during this, um, while we were watching the live stream a little bit about how, like, it's, it's really easy to think in broad strokes about how we should fix this, right? Like that we should increase transparency, how we need to make these systems more ethical by increasing representation. And then we're still left with this question where like, how, how do we do that? Where do we begin? that question. Um, and it's so easy to talk around it or to like pontificate, I think as Vera said in this, about this. And it's so much harder to actually be in the weeds of the systems and, and make changes. Yeah, see, that's that's the interesting thing in all this, right? Like we, we know what we want to do. We just don't exactly know how to do it yet. And so like Vera was saying at the beginning, you know, social media's role should be to inform the public and to mobilize the population. And then I think about social media and companies like Facebook or Twitter and what their vested interests are. And because they're private companies, they were not created necessarily to serve the public or for the public's best interests. Like maybe they were to a certain extent because good user experience builds user retention, which builds more money, but like they weren't built as a public service interest technology. And so while we like to say that there are certain solutions like transparency and, uh, you know, civil discourse or civic discourse and uh, explainability and accountability and all of these illity words, <laughs> it doesn't actually change the fact that these companies weren't built with these value systems in mind. And something that I was really thinking about too, in terms of what you're saying, just in, in general, about how media is just super polarized and politicized and just biased in so many ways, regardless of whether it's on social media or not, 
is that social media, like Dipayan was saying, has become this crazy gatekeeper for information for us. And so that was another one of my big takeaways from this conversation was that because these giant companies, he was referring to, you know, like the top three companies who I think we all know who they are at this point, they have like more than 50% market share and in some cases more than 90% of market share in these information dissemination spaces. And that's crazy <laughs> am i crazy for thinking that that's crazy or is that actually crazy <laughs> no it's it's staggering to think about the amount of power that a few key actors hold not just economically but as we're talking about right it's it's about narratives it's about how we tell our truths and our meaning um and you know, when, when the guests, when Dipayan and Vera talked about what we should do, they talked about holding companies accountable to transparency and privacy. They talked about how the conversation needs to include civil society on these issues and not hold them at a harm's length. And that's not just part of civil society, but all of civil society to get a diversity of voices in on this conversation uh, to make change. And uh, they also spoke about incorporating national perspectives and international perspectives to include geopolitical voices from literally across the world. And then when they were talking about what CS students should do, or, or really, I mean, really, when I felt like Deepayam was talking to me a little bit, and like all of us, right, as listeners of people who are just maybe feeling stuck about like what we should do, or we're learning about this stuff, but we don't know how to make an impact. Uh, he was talking about how we need to think about our critical thinking, uh, how we need to reflect on harm mitigation, learn about bias mitigation, learn about speculation, and how we actually bring these ethical concepts into something more practical, how we continue to expose ourselves to discussions on responsible tech to learn other perspectives. And yet still, right, I'm, I'm just... What do we do? So there's this election that's going to happen in three days to the point where we're recording this. And there is a lot of power that we don't have in it as well. And so when I think about, you know, three companies owning 90% of some of how we, like some of the, the very direct pathways for how we get information in our lives. And then I think about the uh, electoral college in our country, or I think about the select few people who are actually in charge of making decisions, I guess I just fall back into, into trust. And how do we get, uh, because I think we hear from both sides of the aisle at this point, again, at least in the United States, that there's like a lack of trust in the systems and the political systems that we're in, a lack of trust in social media and these bigger institutions. And so for me, and maybe this is my religious studies background um, where, where I fall to these bigger concepts, but like, how do we, build back that trust or maybe build it for the first time in a way that works for everyone and not just the people in power. Yeah, I, no, I'm glad that you said build it for the first time when you're talking about building back trust because I was about to chime in and say, did we ever have trust in the first place? Because it's true. I think that especially when it comes to media and how polarized and how biased media has just been historically take technology out of the picture i mean you know back when the printing press was invented there were only a select few who had access to printers or typewriters or ways to disseminate information and those select few had all the power and so now we have the same exact issues happening but again perpetuated by technology and so i think about 
myself and what I try to do to help build trust in these spaces. And maybe this is all I can do because I don't work for a big tech company um, at this moment. Who knows? <laughs> and I also don't really have influence politically at this moment. So what can I do to build trust for information in my own life. And and for me, um, what that means is usually just trying to hear all sides of a story and recognizing that if I see a news story, that same news story has probably been told on five different platforms and probably has at least five different headlines and is being told in at least five different ways. And so if I'm really gonna get to the heart of what actually happened, I should realistically probably read all of those stories and then try to come up to my own personal conclusion that may or may not still be correct. <laughs> and it's what Vera said, I think is part of what you're pointing to, where uh, some of the things that we can all do is to inform and be informed, to educate and be educated, and to provide evidence for our claims and seek out evidence for things that we might be unsure about. Now that may think it's a little harder when we don't have trust in the things that are informing us, educating us, and are providing us evidence because we don't know necessarily where that truth is. So we also have to attune our, our metrics um, and our sense of what in religious studies we would call our hermeneutics of suspicion. What? I, I know, I always get caught on that <laughs> What word. is that? I did but, not learn that in my computer these, science classroom. No, well then, then that's, maybe there's that's a point. That's the problem. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you need more five-syllable words in the computer science. That's not true. You have enough of those two. Um, but but it's, it's basically just saying, you know, we need to, to uh, we need to be, become educated and attune our sense of when to question and when to trust because there's times to do both. We can't just be skeptical about everything um, because we will never create anything right out of that. And at the same time, we can't just trust everything uh, because then, I don't know, I was going to say then we might end up where we are right now, but I don't know if that's true either. I think where we are right now is in a um, very particular place, a very special place in the history of the world. <laughs> And in that special place, we want to let you all know that the conversation does not stop here. So for each of these episodes in our series with All Tech is Human, you can find a detailed Continue the Conversation page on our website, RadicalAI.org. For each episode, you can find the entire comprehensive list of the action items that we just summarized in part, as well as all of the annotated resources that were mentioned by the guest speakers during the live stream, ways to get involved, relevant books, media, literature, publication, op-eds, and anything you can imagine. And if you have ideas for resources to include, we invite you to share them on our Continue the Conversation page as a comment. Our goal here is to build a space together that helps us raise awareness and take action. So the conversation doesn't stop here. For more information on today's show, please visit the Continue the Conversation page at radicalai.org. Backslash continue dash the dash conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. Catch our weekly episodes on Wednesdays. And as always, stay radical.